0: Gentlemen, one of the difficulties that one encounters in presiding at your meetings and introducing the excellent speakers that we have here is that it's almost impossible to know more or to say more about our fine speakers than uh, the editor of our Civil War Roundtable newsletter says about them in our regular publication. And so I'm not going to take from his time to tell you that all of the things that we have already read about our friend, Dr. Mark Krug. As a person who came to the interest in the Civil War as a Lincoln buff, rather than as principally a war buff, I'm particularly interested in his topic and his interest. Dr. Krug, of course, is an old friend. He is author of the book, Lyman Trumbull, The Conservative Radical, but more important to me is the fact that he is a teaching teacher whose principal job is the inspiration and the instruction of young people in the field that is most important to us. Tonight he's going to speak to us about an Illinois. He's going to talk to us about another Illinoisan and his association with Lyman Trumbull. His topic is Abraham Lincoln and Lyman Trumbull, moderate Republicans. Let's welcome Dr. Mark Crew.
1: Mr. Chairman and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be here No wonder that you are able to get speakers at such high compensation that you pay to the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> but the compensation is in the fact that you, we, at least I, realize, and I'm sure there are others who come and speak here, that you have an opportunity to speak to a group of people who are reading people. course, uh, it's always a pleasure and a rather sense of awe to speak about Lincoln in the presence of Ralph Newman, Mr. Silvestro, and others. And that in itself, of course, is a challenge and an inspiration. I must confess to you that uh, I wanted originally to speak about Lyman Trumbull whose life and biography I have devoted quite a number of years, but uh, I realized after I made a suggestion that Lyman Trumbull's work was primarily in a period of Reconstruction. You are interested in the Civil War. I think you're wise staying away from Reconstruction. So I would speak about, primarily about Abraham Lincoln, and suggest to you a number of myths about Lincoln, which I should like to, with your kind indulgence, if you can suffer until the end of this talk, to tolerate. The late and lamented President John Kennedy said in a commencement exercise address at Yale University in 1962 that historical myths are more dangerous than outright lies because myths usually sort of have a a part of truth in them. And for that reason, it is very difficult to explode them. But this has been, I believe, persistently true, more true, about some of the Lincoln myths, which I believe is almost impossible really to eradicate or to explode. The myth number one that I believe I should like to discuss with you, if you do not accept my position, at least I hope you will think about it, or at least the historical arguments that I will try to present. The first myth is the myth that Abraham Lincoln was moderate on the issue of slavery and moderate on the issue of Negro rights. This is one of the most persistent myths perpetuated by many historians and almost uniformly to be found in all history high schools both on the high school and college level. There are some subsidiary myths that are really part of this great one myth And that is that the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858 were really that historians, for whatever reason, exaggerated their importance. Because there was really no basic difference between Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln in the 1858 debates. In fact, some of the most distinguished historians of the Civil War have written about this position, that is their position, that's George Milton, George Fort Milton, James G. Randall, and my revered teacher whom I revere, but don't agree with, Professor Avery Craven. That's from him I got my PhD. And he made me his teaching assistant while knowing that I didn't agree with philosophy of an interpretation of the Civil War, but that's the greatness of the University of Chicago. These historians and many others, smaller ones and less distinguished and I think less knowledgeable, have perpetuated this idea that actually the Lincoln-Douglas debates weren't very important because there was no really difference between Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln. There was a method in this perpetuation of this myth. They weren't really primarily interested in debates. They were interested in propounding a particular philosophy about the Civil War, uh, which is the philosophy that the Civil War was a needless war. You know that George Fort Milton entitled his book, Biography of Stephen Douglas, The Needless War, Stephen A. stark The idea was, of course, perpetuated by James G. Randall and by Craven, that this was a a war that came about because of a blundering generation that did not know how to reach a consensus. So it's very hard for us to reach a consensus now, too. Somebody's going to write soon sometime a book about the needless war that is making impossible for us now to reach a consensus. But the idea was that the whole civil war was really unnecessary. It was brought about by extremists, the fire-eaters, both in the North and the South, that somehow the moderate middle, the moderate middle of the American people and American statesmen were not able to bring about a compromise that would have avoided the war. And, of course, the Lincoln-Douglas debates were part of this uh, interpretation of the causes uh, of the Civil War. I should like to discuss, basically, all of these these three myths, and the, another subsidiary one, which also fits into the picture. It's all part of this great myth, and that is that the Emancipation Proclamation really was a... Not a very exciting document at all that was actually some said, a kind of a fraud, a phony uh, misinterpreted uh, And I think that all of this is really part of this basic myth, in which I do not believe that Abraham Lincoln did not really care about the abolition of slavery, that all he was interested in is in the preservation of the Union. I think that in the hollow tradition of Al Smith, I should like to suggest to you that let's look at the record. I suggest to you that Abraham Lincoln detested slavery from his youth and desired its prompt abolition. In the early 1830s, Abraham Lincoln and a colleague of his, Lyman Trumbull, a lawyer from Belleville and Alton, devoted a great deal of their time to destroying the legal basis of the Negro indenture system, which amounted really to the de facto Negro slavery in Illinois. In 1839, after defending many, many escaped indentured slaves, indentured servants, in 1839 Abraham Lincoln, at his own expense of course, carried the case of Cromwell versus Bailey to the Illinois Supreme Court on behalf of a poor indentured slave. We only have a name, as Nancy. In 1839, the Illinois Supreme Court accepted the arguments of Abraham Lincoln, who was supported by Lyman Trumbull and Gustav Kerner. who was later, as you know, Lieutenant Governor of Illinois, in 1839, the Illinois Supreme Court accepted the arguments of the de- attorneys for the defense and ruled in a historic decision that in the state of Illinois the presumption was that the Negro was free and not subject to sale. In 1837, Abraham Lincoln, a representative in the Illinois state of representatives, inserted a protest a whole-page protest in a journal of the House in which he castigated alone under his own signature the pro-slavery resolutions passed by the Illinois General Assembly. In 1846, one of the House of Representatives, Abraham Lincoln, as he later said with a little exaggeration, he said 20 or 30 times, he introduced resolutions to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia. Let me say to you with all sense of responsibility that in 1846, to introduce a resolution in the House of Representatives to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia took a great deal of courage. It took even more guts, and those people who are so unhappy about the dissent in these days should remember It took even more guts for this young representative from Illinois in 1846 and in 1847 to stand up in the House and denounce President Polk for an act of aggression against Mexico, because he, in spite of the fact that this was a declared war supported by Congress, bitterly, vehemently opposed the war on Mexico and accused the president and the government of the United States of committing an act of naked aggression against Mexico. The reason why why Abraham Lincoln was so exercised about the war against Mexico was, of course, obviously because of the fear that any accession at any incorporation into the territory of the United States of either Texas or other territories would mean the strengthening of slavery in the United States. In 1855 in a letter to his friend George Robertson of Kentucky on August 15th Abraham Lincoln wrote the condition of the Negro slave in America scarcely less terrible to the contemplation of a free mind is now fixed and hopeless of change for the better as that of the souls of the finally impenitent. Now I come to the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I suggest to you, friends, that it is a myth and a distortion of the factual record of the debates to suggest that there was no basic, most important difference between Lincoln and Douglas in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And I suggest to you that that difference was basically and exclusively on the issue of slavery. Stephen A. Douglas, I am sorry to say, was an advocate of the principle of white supremacy and a racist. In Jonesboro, in the debate, Stephen A. Douglas said as follows, I quote, I hold that this government was made on the white basis for the white man for the benefit of white men and none others the signers of the declaration of independence had no reference to the negro when they wrote the declaration abraham lincoln who said of course as you know on the platform with douglas looked at stephen douglas and said the Declaration of Independence did pertain to the Negroes at least as far as the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was concerned. He rejected any attempt to exclude Negroes, Catholics, from the benefits and privileges implicit in the Declaration. And he added, quote, I should like to know, Judge Douglas, if taking this old Declaration of Independence which declares that all men were created equal upon principle and making exception to it, where will it stop? If one man says it does not mean a negro, why not say it does not mean any other man? I said before, twice already, that it is frequently said that there was no central issue or central point of difference in the debates. I should like to suggest to you friends that Abraham Lincoln did not agree with that position. He saw a very important, basic difference between himself and Douglas. In Alton, Illinois, in the debates, Abraham Lincoln said, the real issue in this controversy, the one pressing upon every mind is the sentiment of the part of one part of the people that looks upon the institution of slavery as a political, social, and religious evil, and another class that does not look upon slavery as a wrong. I know that it has been very often suggested that, and that Lincoln was a moderate on the issue of slavery, or Negro rights, or Negro position in the United States, because in the debates in Charleston he did not favor social and political equality of the white and black races. I would like to suggest to you that this is an utterly irrelevant argument. It is irrelevant because in 1858 the issue of political or social equality of the Negroes was not an issue. Not one abolitionist leader including Lloyd Garrison or Wendell Phillips or Greeley or anybody else in 1858 advocated the abolition the social or political equality of Negroes the only relevant question to our subject in 1858 was the analysis of Abraham Lincoln's convictions of slavery its continuation or its abolition When he opened the senatorial campaign in Chicago, he said on July 10th, quote, I have always hated slavery, I think, as much as any abolitionist. On October 7th, in Galesburg, Lincoln said, quote, now I confess myself as belonging to that class in this country who contemplate slavery as a moral, social, and political evil and desire a policy that looks to the prevention of it as a wrong and to its eradication. In Ottawa, on August 21st, Lincoln castigated slavery as a source of perpetual friction in this nation. In 1858, after the debates, he wrote a letter again to George Robertson in which he wrote, quote, the condition of the Negro slave in America, scarcely less terrible to the contemplation of a free mind, is now as fixed and hopeless of change for the better as that of the lost souls of the finally impenitent. Now I come to this myth about the Emancipation Proclamation. What is said about this Emancipation Proclamation? It is said that Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation reluctantly, that he was goaded, made miserable, by the radical Republicans who were pressing him to issue a declaration which he did not wish to issue. Richard Hofstetter, a fine historian, but who wrote a horrible, I believe, essay on Lincoln in the American political tradition, said, and a very felicitous, but I consider utterly nonsensical statement that the Emancipation Proclamation, said Hofstetter, has as much excitement in it as a Bill of Leiden. The reason why it is suggested that the Emancipation Proclamation was really not very important and its importance is exaggerated was because it, after all, freed slaves and only those who were in the Confederate territory. I have time and again her teachers exclaim that the Emancipation Proclamation actually didn't free one slave. And it was, as I said, issued mainly as a war measure to appease the radical Republicans. I should like to suggest to you on the other side of this argument that Salmon P. Chase, the Secretary of the Treasury in Lincoln's cabinet, wrote in his diary that almost a year before Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, he said to him, quote, when the rebel army was at Fredericksburg, I determined as soon as it should be driven out of Maryland to issue a proclamation of emancipation freeing the Negro slaves. And he continued and said to Chase, I said nothing to anyone, but I made the promise to myself and hesitating a little bit as Chase recalled it to my maker, end quote. The Chicago Tribune, I believe its editors who almost probably made Lincoln what he was, who knew Lincoln probably better than anybody else, wrote in an editorial, the cautious language of the president of slavery does not hide from us who know the deep moral conviction of the man on slavery, the purpose that he has in view. He comes to an advanced position for the abolition of slavery. We make progress, we foresee the end, perhaps a long way off, a republic without a traitor, And without a slave. One of the assertions, friends, that Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in response to an unbearable pressure put on him on the radical Republicans who were supposed to have made his life miserable. A historian wrote, T. Harry Williams, quote, the wily Lincoln surrendered to the conquering, conquering Jacobins in every controversy before they could publicly inflict upon him, inflict upon him a damaging reverse. End quote. I should like to ask you and ask all students of Lincoln, how does one square the sweeping statement of Lincoln's abject surrender to the so-called Jacobins with the fact that this same president rescinded the Fremonts and Hunters proclamations refused to fire Seward and took the decision to dismiss McClellan only after he himself became convinced of the necessity for these steps. Those who insist on portraying Lincoln as patiently suffering the wrath, the vilification and the pressure from the radical extremists, I suggest must find an answer to some very perplexing questions. If it is true that the Radicals were such a thorn in the side of Lincoln and that he was actually scared by them into issuing the proclamation, one would assume, since they had the most important positions in Congress, that the President's cooperation with, with that Congress, which the Radical Republicans dominated, must have been a very trying thing and that very little was really <coughs> accomplished. But the fact is, I suggest, that Lincoln received from the 37th Congress which was supposedly dominated by the so-called Jacobins, excellent cooperation. Is it not a fact that the 37th Congress in its short session between December 4, 1861 and July 17, 1862, passed a very impressive list of legislative acts which included the appropriation bills for the Army and the Navy? an income tax law, the new tariff law, the Homestead Act, the college land grant, the act of abolishing slavery in the District of Columbia, the establishment of the Department of Agriculture. I should like to suggest that uh, Lyndon Johnson would be very happy with such a record with Congress. Is it not a fact that Lincoln received excellent cooperation from such radical leaders as Charles Sumner, who in fact I believe was one of his best friends, or at least the best friend of Mary Lincoln, the chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, Senator Henry Wilson, another supposedly Jacobin radical Republican from Massachusetts who was chairman of the Senate Committee on Military Services and Militia, John P. Hale, chairman of the Senate Committee on Naval Affairs, and from none other than Zachary Chandler, chairman of the Senate Committee on Commerce, not to mention his close relations with men who are still, of course, mistakenly and foolishly classed as radicals, like William Pitt Fessenden, chairman of the Senate Committee on Finance from Maine, and our own Lyman Trumbull, chairman of the Senate Committee on the Judiciary from Illinois. Even Thaddeus Stevens, who was always assassinated in our books and textbooks with his time-style adjectives, wily, old, who was at that time the chairman of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee. He, the record shows, gave Lincoln full support on the measures sought by the President for the prosecution of the war in, the, in spite of his private misgivings he had about Lincoln's caution in emancipating slaves. This impressive legislative record, of which I suggest every President would be very proud, could not have been accomplished without the active cooperation of this band of so-called Jacobins. The pages of the Congressional Globe, and I have read them all, do not bear, of that period, do not bear out the contention that the radicals badgered Lincoln and obstructed his program. On the contrary, these pages provide proof that Sumner, Wilson, Hale, Chandler, and Fessenden and Trumbull, of course, had a deep and abiding affection for the president and gave him their faithful and unstinted cooperation. Carl Schurz, who was an astute observer and himself no admirer of Sumner, wrote in his autobiography, quote, Lincoln regarded and esteemed Sumner as the outspoken conscience of the advanced anti-slavery element, the confidence and hearty cooperation of which was to him of highest moment. It might be helpful to consider, I suggest, if we are truly trying to examine the greatness of Lincoln and his attitude both to the radical Republicans and to the conservative Republicans, a most remarkable statement that Lincoln himself made to Charles Drake, a Republican from Missouri, later Senator from Missouri, when Drake came to him telling him about this perpetual strife between the Radicals and the conservative Republicans in the state of Missouri. Following this conference between Lincoln and Drake, the President wrote him a letter on October 5, 1863. Please listen carefully how the President himself evaluated his relations, both with the Radicals and the Conservatives, because it does bespeak the genius of which I believe, who was, I believe, the greatest president we have ever had. He wrote, I do not feel justified to enter upon the broad field you present in regard to the differences between the radicals and the conservatives. From time to time I have done and said what appeared to me proper. The public knows it well. It obliges nobody to follow me and I trust it obliges me to follow nobody. The radicals and the conservatives each agree with each other and would be too strong for any fall. They, however, choose to do otherwise, and I do not question their right. I, too, shall do what seems to me my duty. It is my duty to hear all, but at last I must, within my sphere, judge what to do, and what to forbear. Seems to me that the statement clearly indicates that Lincoln not only did not resent, but actually welcomed the pressures and the attacks on his policies, both by the radicals on one side and the conservatives on the other. Because these attacks and these pressures gave him a free hand, as he did, to act according to his own judgment and actually preserved his freedom of action. What was the reception? And I think that this is something that we must not and ought not overlook. What was the reaction of the contemporaries, of the people who actually heard about the proclamation and read about it? What was the reaction of the people who lived at that time, of the editors, of the people, of the leaders? to the Emancipation Proclamation. Did they also feel that the Emancipation Proclamation was really not a very important document? Did it meant little or nothing for the prosecution of the war, for the very ideological thrust of the war? I suggest to you that in a very objective, some objective, that the very objective examination of the record <coughs> shows that the Emancipation Proclamation met with the approval of all the factions of the Republican Party, the moderates, the radicals, and the conservatives. The applause was of course not limited to the radical wing. There is also sufficient evidence to suggest that most Republican leaders were convinced that the proclamation cautious and limited in scope as it was represented a turning point in the war because it made the abolition of slavery and the freeing of the Negroes a central issue in the Civil War. The Republican governors met a day after the Emancipation Proclamation the war Republican Governors met in Altoona, Pennsylvania a day after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued. They published to the North an address and in it they said, this is the statement of the Republican Governors, quote, the decision of the President to strike at the root of the rebellion will lend new vigor to the efforts and new life and hope to the hearts of the people cordially tendering to the president our respectful assurance and personal and official confidence. We trust and believe that the policy now inaugurated will be crowned with success and will give speedy and triumphant victories over our enemies and secure to this nation and this, this people, all the people, the blessings and the freedom under Almighty God. That is the part of the address of the Republican Governors on the dealing with the issuance of Emancipation Proclamation. I should like to ask you a question. Our country was blessed during the Civil War and after the Civil War by the fact that this country had some most distinguished group of great editors, newspaper editors, I doubt whether we can single out a group of any comparable importance or influence today. There was Medill and Horace White of the Chicago Tribune. There was Murat Holstead of the Cincinnati Cincinnati Inquirer. There was Samuel Bowles Bowles of the Springfield Republican. There was Horace Greeley believe that it might be quite interesting to ask ourselves, what did these shrewd editors, most of them basically could be classed as radical Republicans, what did they say about the Emancipation Proclamation? Did they feel that it was just a, as, as exciting as a bill of Lading, or that it was a phony and a fraud? Horace Greeley's New, New York Tribune wrote on September 24th, that Lincoln had not only pledged in the proclamation the freedom of the four million blacks, but that he also freed 20 million whites from the curse of slavery. The Chicago Tribune, which advocated an unconditional and uncompensated abolition of slavery from the very beginning of the war said in an editorial, quote, the president has set his hand and affixed the great seal of this republic to the grandest proclamation ever issued by man. So splendid a vision has hardly shown upon the world since the day of Messiah. From this proclamation begins the history of the Republic as our fathers designed to have it. Let no one think to stray, to stay the glorious Reformation. Even the moderate New York Times, it was moderate even then, stated that the president's proclamation was, quote, the most far-reaching document ever issued by the government and its wisdom and necessity are indisputable. Bowles in the Springfield Republican praised the proclamation as timely, just, and magnanimous. He predicted that the president's action will have the support of the mass of the loyal people, North and South. And he concluded, quote, thus, by the courage and prudence of the President, the greatest social and political revolution of the age will be triumphantly carried through in the midst of the Civil War. How are we to square these enthusiastic appraisals of the importance of the proclamation by the leading Republican newspapers with the views of so many contemporary historians who find that evidence suggests that the document was neither very important nor very exciting? Are we to suppose that editors and politicians of the caliber of Horace Greeley, Henry J. Raymond, Joseph Medill, Wilbur Storey, and that reminds me that the reaction of the Democratic papers that, of course, opposed Lincoln and denounced the proclamation, was quite similar on this very basic acceptance and agreement to the fact that the Declaration was a revolutionary turning point in the war, and so did, of course... As you know, if you look at the editorials in the Southern papers, stated exactly the same. So it would seem to me that, in conclusion, that the country, both North and South, knew that the Emancipation Proclamation transformed the aim of the war. Maybe its effectiveness was even greater because it applied only to the Confederate territory, because it meant that every step forward of the Union Army meant the freeing of the slaves but finally I come to the last point on this great myth which unfortunately is being taught to millions of our children all over the country which are persi- with, with a persistence that I believe deserves a better cause there seems to be a general determination to ignore Mm -hmm. the gradual evolution of the views of Abraham Lincoln on the position, the rights of Negroes in this country as the war progressed. Abraham Lincoln was very much impressed with the courage and valor of the 150,000 Negro soldiers who served and fought with courage and determination in the Union Army. This incidentally I should like to tell you, but sorrow and regret is the best kept secret in all of our textbooks. For some reason this chapter of history, which would show that the Negroes as making an important contribution to the saving of the Union, is almost uniformly ignored by some historians and almost all history textbooks. College and high school students know all about the letter that Lincoln wrote to Horace Greeley. By the time in which he said that if it would take to save the Union with freeing all of the slaves, fine, part of the slaves, none of the slaves, you know that letter. Incidentally, that letter was written after already six or seven drafts of the Emancipation Proclamation were already in his desk in the State Department and after he already had the approval of the Cabinet for the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. But no matter everybody, in every textbook. There is a quite an extensive quote from the letter from Greeley, which is supposed to tell our children that Abraham Lincoln didn't really care about freeing of the slaves. What he cared only is the preservation of the Union. But our children... And our general public, for some reason, seldom are told that three days after the letter to Greeley, three days, Mr. Lincoln wrote a letter to an Illinois politician by the name of James G. Conklin. And in that letter, he wrote to him as follows. That's three days after the Greeley letter. He wrote to him. Dear Conklin, you say that you will not fight for the Negroes. Some of them seem to be willing to fight for you, but no matter. Peace does not appear so distant as it did. And there will be some black man who can remember that with silent tongue and clenched teeth and steady eye and a well-poised bayonet, they have helped mankind on this great consummation, while I fear that there will be some white ones unable to forget that with malignant heart and deceitful speech they have striven to hinder it. Quote. Mr. Lincoln must have, as the war was drawing to a close, devoted many brooding hours, as he was wont to do, to think about what to do. What is going to happen with the three or three and a half million freed slaves? He was fully aware, with the insight into his people, both black and white, that the road to this adjustment and conciliation or some modus vivendi between the blacks and the whites will be a difficult one. You know that when he called in a delegation of Negro leaders to the White House, he told them, for no fault of either yours or ours, there's a tremendous bridge and gulf between your race and ours you are suffering because you are with us, we are suffering because you are here. (coughs) As you know, he suggested a voluntary colonization of Negroes in some country, black country, which of course would be free, where freedom would prevail. But the plan failed because the Negroes did not wish to emigrate from America. And the President abandoned this plan. He was then thinking about what will happen about Reconstruction, what will happen with the Negroes in the South, those three and a half million freedmen, and the general relationship between Negroes and whites. I should like to suggest to you that we are doing a tremendous injustice to the memory of this great American, if we, in our textbooks, and our teachers, and our historians, unfortunately, some of them ignore what the record shows. By the time, shortly before his assassination, there is no doubt in my mind that Mr. Lincoln considered it a moral obligation on the part of the nation to think very carefully about steps that would bring about eventually to the full equality of Negroes and whites and their incorporation in the body politics of America. On January 24th, 1864, Mr. Lincoln wrote a letter to General Wadworth, who was the commanding general of the Union Army in Washington, D.C., and I will read to you this letter in toto. Dear General Wadworth, you desire to know, in the event of our complete success in the field, the same being followed by a loyal and cheerful submission on the part of the South, if universal amnesty, that's of course for the South, should not be accompanied by universal suffrage, That's the suffrage, the the right to vote for Negroes and for everybody else. Now, since you know my private inclinations as to what terms should be granted to the South in the contingency mentioned, I will here add that if our success should thus be realized, followed by such desired results, I cannot see if universal amnesty is granted how under the circumstances I can avoid exacting in return universal suffrage or at least suffrage for the Negroes on the basis of intelligence and military service. How to better the conditions of the colored race has long been a study that has attracted my serious and careful attention. Hence I think I am clear and decided as to what course I shall pursue in the premises, regarding it a religious duty as the nation's guardian of these people, who have so heroically vindicated their manhood on the battlefield, wherein assisting to save the life of the Republic, they have demonstrated in blood their right to the ballot, which is but the humane protection of the flag they have so fearlessly defended. The restoration of the rebel states to the Union must rest upon the principle of civil and political equality of both races, and it must be sealed by a general amnesty. In conclusion, let me suggest that it is important, if not to explode the myths, at least to think about whether they are true or completely true for a number of reasons. First, I believe historical truth demands it. Secondly, it seems to me that the perpetuations of these myths detract from the image of Abraham Lincoln. Thirdly, it seems to me that it belittles the basic difficult, tortuous dedication of the American people to assure freedom and equality to all of its citizens. And finally, I should like to suggest to you that the perpetuation of these myths has had and still does have a disturbing influence on the relations between the whites and the Negro community. It is for this reason that I suggest that these myths be re-examined. Thank you.
0: I'm sure that this has been an interesting and stimulating period for you as it has been for me, and now in this, the 264th regular meeting of our roundtable, we will continue our policy of throwing our speaker to the lions of our membership, Dr. Krug, and asking for questions, and the first one comes from Mr. Fisher. Uh,
2: Dr. Crew, I'd like to have you comment on the attitude of the radical Republicans to Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson. Now, uh, whether or not this is a myth, I'm not prepared to say. But we have been taught that uh, Johnson was crucified simply because he wanted to perpetuate uh, Lincoln's policies after his assassination. That he was a firm believer in what Lincoln stood for, planned for, and thought for, and because of his liberal attitude toward the Negro, uh, he was uh, on the break of impeachment. Now, would you care to
1: comment on that? I suggest you invite me for another speech. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to say, in brief, that this is one of the more, even more pernicious myths perpetuated glibly but uh, in this case I must say that the historians like Stephen Woodward whose book you bought so cheaply uh, (laughs) and others have been able to influence history textbook writers to change. If you took a look at some of our history textbooks now, that glib statement that always as you said, is in the textbooks that go something like that, that Andrew Johnson, when he became president, he decided to continue the magnanimous charitable policy of Abraham Lincoln, and he was all ready to do that except that those wily, wild-eyed radicals sabotaged his efforts there are many, many things wrong with, this, with, this, with this, this appraisal of the situation. The first fact that I think is almost indisputable now in Civil War and Reconstruction scholarship is that when Abraham Lincoln was murdered, he did not have a plan for the reconstruction of the South, that his plan failed, and failed miserably. Mr. Lincoln has tried to establish some reconstruction governments in Louisiana and Arkansas and Florida and in fact, friends on May 11th when he gave his last speech to the serenaders and he came on the balcony and talked to them the whole speech, his last speech was devoted to reconstruction and in that speech he acknowledged and he said that his reconstruction has failed And he suggested that, in fact, he invited Congress or anybody else to suggest other plans for Reconstruction. Then in this speech, if you read it, he said that it may very well be that we may need ten different plans of Reconstruction for the ten ex-Confederate states because the conditions were so different in all the states. To suggest that there was no difference between Andrew Johnson is really to forget that Andrew Johnson was not a Republican that Andrew Johnson was a Democrat during the war of course he covered himself with eternal glory because he was the only Democratic senator from the South who stayed with the Union he had a abiding abiding, tremendous devotion to the Union but the fact is and I must say that and I should be delighted to square the record with it Andrew Johnson was a white supremacist who believed that the Negroes were innately inferior. In fact, in the the first message to Congress, in which Andrew Johnson sent, after the passage of the Freedmen's Bureau Bill and the Civil Rights Bill, which of course he vetoed, he suggested that all of history of mankind shows that black people were not capable of any government and he suggested that any, any passage of any bills like the Civil Rights Bill to give, not social or political, but just personal security or special rights protection to the Negroes would, as he put it, and I quote him, to the barbarization of our country. In view of these uh, few facts, and I don't want to expand on this topic, to suggest that Andrew Johnson followed the policies of Abraham Lincoln is really not accepting historical evidence as it is. I am not even now speaking at all for the fact that Abraham Lincoln was a genius in the White House as far as the handling of opposition of Congress while with all the due respect that we should have for Andrew Johnson, the fact is that he was a wrong man for the wrong time in the White House, because personally he lacked certain qualities which were so shining in Abraham Lincoln, the insight into people, the ability to understand what a compromise meant, and that unfortunately Andrew Johnson was almost psychologically, innately incapable of a compromise. Thank you. Other questions? Yes,
0: Ralph. You know, Dr. Cruz pointed it out so admirably. We must always remember that Mr. Lincoln was a political realist, and no more consummate politician ever occupied the White House. We tend to forget that in the period in which the anti slavery movement was being developed, There were also people in this country who hated slavery who did not like the Negro. They believed in a free white America. Abolish slavery, it is true, but not necessarily grant the Negro anything. Get rid of them, free them and ship them was really what they wanted. Now, Mr. Lincoln, first of all, hated the institution of slavery. He was too good a politician to weaken that cause, which was the first goal, free these people. by introducing other elements that would weaken the support he might have by just opposing the institution of slavery. And as he gained strength, as the war progressed, as it became possible to add other goals, he did. He did them very carefully, and he did it only when he was on shared ground. You know, you know he would see, the position was that of any really successful politician. Never leave the table empty handed. Don't, don't demand everything and settle for nothing. You always get something, and you come back for more. No matter how little you get, you nail down that, that gain, and then you attack again. The Emancipation Proclamation was a superb human document. When you read accounts, contemporary accounts, of the effect of this document, that Dr. Krug mentioned very briefly, It made the advance of the Union Army a superb superb march of liberation. The Negroes felt it coming. The moment they touched your territory, you were a free man. Now Lincoln wasn't fine with the slave in the border states,
2: because this is a problem he didn't need. He knew that
0: we could take care of this later. The important thing was free the slaves in this area And what did he do? The moment an army approached or came into your area, you lost your slaves, you lost your household help, you lost your support to your troops because of the superb way this document was constructed. It's possible if you don't understand the period of study this document to say he's only freeing the Negroes in the area over which he had no control. But this is the cynical approach to this and this isn't what he had in mind. Thank you, Robin. I don't think that specifically calls for an answer. Sorry, right to you, Mike. I saw Dan's hand, and I owe him something. You know? <laughs> well, uh, Ralph, I'd just like to ask you something. I
2: this thing that you just made, and that was, uh, what about uh, his strong opposition to uh, General Fremont's emancipation, which was similar to his own, to
1: his own. Oh, was, uh, I think, Mr. I think, Mr. Newman really answered the question. First of all, he felt that the uh, the uh, the Freeman Declaration was illegal because it was contradicted the First Confiscation Act. It was illegal, and as president, he had to enforce the law. And secondly, in line which was so, uh, of course, uh, superbly stated by Mr. Uh, Newman. This was just in the right time. The country wasn't ready for that. And he, at that time, he was terribly worried about the border states. And under no conditions would he endanger the endanger the... Was he put it, I think, once that he needed 100,000 bayonets from the border states. But
2: you might concede that that might
1: have been some ground for the which you think? Yes, I, I, I... Sure, I concede, but I still feel that the myth was not... Fight.
2: Yes, uh, I have to disagree a little bit with our friend Dr. Krug about the necessity for dispelling myths or whatever mythology is history. I think the whole beauty of studying the Civil War and the interest in the war is the fifth dimension. Uh, if a myth is good for you or if it fits the situation, for your own personally, like a painting or something, uh, let it be. It is really. Not as serious as you make it. I like to make a very strong point out of that. I think the year was about 1951 or 52. It was the first year Ralph Newman was down in New Salem. Uh, we took a group of the readers of our newspaper down, a couple of busloads of people, and there was a play called Prologue to Glory* down in Tulsa, Iowa, in New Salem. It was a beautiful starlit June night. And it was very, very lovely. And was the young. Abraham Lincoln on the stage and a beautiful Ann Rutledge girl. And there was a beautiful romance. And sitting behind us was Harry Pratt, the state historian of Illinois, his wife, Brian, Dolores Pratt, the very brilliant historian in her own right. And all during the beautiful June night, this lovely, gorgeous, gorgeous romance that was going on the stage, Marian kept booking Harry. Imagine all that big stuff. put all that. Who cared whether it was baloney or not or how faint it was? Because it was a beautiful June night with stars around and other people carrying it down there to And there is a train calling those. Oh sure. So there must have been something to the story, whether it was a myth, so when they had an the intermission I went back to Carrie. Elder, and they the shut up. If it's true, if it's not true, these people are enjoying the play, and it is about Abraham Lincoln. Now, the study of American history, principally the Civil War, there's a great old story about the group that were touring the South, and everywhere that went, this guy kept saying, that this battle, the Union Army was routed, and this battle really lost, and someone went, Hey, you're wrong. this is part history, that's not true. The guy says, I'm the Toros, later here, this is the way it's going to be. But he had that right to say that. He had that right to fight that. Recently, we've had some very good books about the war within the war. The problems that the southern governors have with the south, what the north, with the north, the was on what side. The whole beauty of the Civil War, the whole interest, the whole narrative of the story is the problem. As Ralph points out, the problem of uh, Abraham Lincoln, Harold you know, Hyman did a very brilliant thing on the very, very same subject. But I, and I'm getting older, I'm not a grandfather, four little kids, but getting more tolerant. I have a feeling that people are entitled to this I mean, but it isn't too serious, as far as their own knowledge of history and their own application of it. You know, I think that uh, Marion and, and Pratt, whether they were right or wrong, were wrong for disturbing those good people on the night of I have a
1: feeling that this is what Dr. Drew does want to answer.
2: <laughs>
1: yes, I do want to answer. And I want to say, plead with you, it's a wonderful evening. You are a very comfortable audience and you like good humor. But I could not more profoundly disagree with this uh, statement just made. There is, a, there is a tremendous difference between a myth about Anne Rutledge and her romance and between the things that I have been trying to talk to you about. I talked to you about an interpretation and I believe a historical record of relations between the white and the Negro community in this country. I talk to you about the basic attitude of a great American on slavery and freedom and the rights of those who even with our Constitution and the Declaration of Independence did not have the rights to be free men and free citizens and equal. Talk to the fact that the distortion of this record means that our children who cannot afford the luxury, they are not yet grandparents, must look at the record of their country and re examine their own values and their own attitudes. I came here because. I believe that the intelligent, objective appraisal of that crucial period in the history of our country has, friends, and we must recognize it even in this very comfortable situation here, a continuous relevance to our situation today. The Rutledge myth really has no relevance for us today except some curiosity. But whether Abraham Lincoln, by the time, by his last year in office, was ready to fight for the equality, political equality of Negroes in this country, does have a relevance to us today. And I believe we owe it to our children to present the historical record as it was. At least, I suggest, not to accept my point of view or somebody else's point of view, but to give it very serious, very serious consideration.
0: Ralph wishes to defend himself against the charge that Mike agreed with him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can return the compliment to Dr. Krug, because he answered superbly. But I'd just like to point out that,
2: unfortunately, Mike,
0: history isn't always a beautiful June night. It can be a Cold Harbor, that and, night of what? or the Bundel Arch, or the stinking dead laying on the field of Antietam after the battle. And this does make a difference. I'd like to suggest that the reason the Round Table exists and is strong <coughs> is because our quarrel with myths over all these years. Because otherwise, our members could be very comfortable, though I suspect rather bored, at meetings of other types of patriotic organizations where myths are revered truth and truth is feared. Uh, One of the nice things about chairing the meeting is that you can stick in your own question when you want to. (coughs) Dr. Krug, I take what you said very seriously and I'd like to point out that it is possible for me to want to impeach say one of your witnesses without at all disagreeing with your uh, basic thesis and that I can respect very highly the idea that what you said basically about Lincoln's attitude toward the Negro race has a great application to today. I'd like to point out that I think you went a bit astray when you pointed to Lincoln's record in the Congress of the United States, when he introduced the SPOT resolutions and took an attitude in opposition to a war in which the United States was engaged. Now, I have heard two interpretations of his anti-war position. One is that he was loyal to the Whig position, which was anti-president. And the other was that Lincoln meant just what he said and believed that this was a war of an of aggression, that it was an unjustified act by the people of the United States. And I would say that today, not only does this first point that you make have a relevance, a relevance today, but Lincoln's attitude toward what he considered, or at least said, was an unjustified war has relevance today. And I would like to ask you pointedly where you see in Lincoln's own words support of the idea that his opposition to the Mexican War was based on the conviction that if we won it, the territory gained would become slave territory. <clears throat>
1: Well, uh, I wish I had the Lincoln reader here, because then I could quote from Lincoln himself. Uh, you, you were perfectly correct, uh, Mr. Chairman, and I think it was a scholarly observation that a part of Lincoln's opposition was, you know, he had a kind of a hero fixation on Henry Clay. And Clay, you know, was his hero. And, but the fact is, surprisingly... The other Whig congressmen and senators did not support his position. In fact, it was a very lonely voice. But one would have understood if Mr. Lincoln, as the young freshman representative from Illinois in the midst of the war, would take the floor and speak against the president and the war. But first of all, you ought to, we, we have to read the text of the speech, the first speech. This was a most vehement ad hominem denunciation of the president as actually saying that the president instigated this whole war and that this was a war of naked aggression contrary to the best ideals of the united states one would have understood that he made this one speech sometimes congressmen make a freshman speech which doesn't which goes over like a dad and then they keep silent for the next two years but not Mr. Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln took the floor four days later and introduced the most famous spot resolution. It's not very usual for a freshman congressman to introduce any resolutions in the House, but he did. That spot resolution provided that it was the sense of the House, and he apparently hoped also would be a joint resolution with the Senate, demanding that President Polk tell Congress exactly the spot where the Mexican troops committed aggression against the American troops. I don't have to tell you, you know, Illinois was exceptionally, this was a most suicidal act on the part of this congressman. For some reason, Illinois was terribly proud of of the war and supported the Mexican war with tremendous enthusiasm. We had And now, James General Shield, we had a number of heroes Illinois had in the Mexican War. And of course, the Whig newspaper denounced him bitterly, the entire press, unanimously, regardless of political shadings, denounced him, and in fact, as you know, he was told that this will be his last term in Congress, and so it was. So I would like to suggest that this was a, on the part of Lincoln, a premeditated act of unexcelled political courage. In fact, I must say I have always regretted that our late and lamented president historian John F. Kennedy did not include a chapter on Abraham Lincoln in the Profiles of Courage because it would have been ideally suited for a special chapter. And it was really a supreme act of political courage.
0: I uh, saw minor Co yeah.
3: I just want to say, with regard to what Mike said a little while ago, I think that I have more experience both since I have been there, there's a tremendous difference between plays, which have what we call dramatic license. They don't have to tell the story and first of all, must tell the truth. There's one point I will agree with you on, that uh, our good friend, Mr. Pratt, and his wife uh, should, have been, should have been a little more quiet <laughs> about the whole thing. If other people are enjoying it, why not let them enjoy it? They were uh, perhaps a little out of order in poking each other and saying that isn't true at that point. If they wanted to do it later, that was their privilege. But uh, while people are enjoying a dramatic performance, you are not necessarily looking for truth. You're looking for enjoyment. In history, it's an entirely different thing. The first thing you want in history is the truth, whether it hurts or whether
0: it doesn't hurt. Don five had a question, thank you. Dr. Drew, during the course of your talk, you mentioned
1: uh, that
2: Lincoln had a plan to emancipate and then ship the Negroes out of the United States to some free country like Liberia or somewhere down South America. Then he went on to say that he abandoned this plan. And yet in Swanberg's book about Sickles the Incredible, he goes on to great lengths to talk about why Sickles was down, I believe, in Columbia and missed the grand review because he was looking for a place uh to transport the Negroes to on Mr. Lincoln's uh Plan. Well, now, this was maybe four or five days before Lincoln was, was uh, killed. Uh, this seems to me to indicate that he had not abandoned this plan. Would so you clarify this point, please?
1: No. Before he suggested the plan to the Negro leaders and then followed it with a message to Congress, Asking actually for appropriations of money by the substantial amounts of money. There has been some preparatory work done because Mr. Lincoln made the colonization of the Negro. They, uh, when nobody proposed, Mr. Lincoln, of course, would be the last one to have proposed it, that they be shipped against their will. This was all to be done on a voluntary basis. The Negro leaders, including Frederick Douglass, told the president that they were born here, that they have lived here for many, many generations, that they consider themselves part of this country, that they did not come here on their own volition, and that they have no intention of leaving. And it is my understanding from a number of letters written and Mr. Lincoln never mentioned this question anymore in the messages to Congress. I don't know on what basis this author still suggests that somebody went there at the last days of Lincoln's life. I don't know. but I would have been very surprised if, if, if this was still a really alive issue. Maybe some exploration still took place.
0: We're breaking all kinds of rules tonight. Well, I can clarify this a little. Let uh, realize... When the, this plan
3: was rejected first right. time, on one of the weaknesses he
0: suggested that sort of well, there were no yes. takers, as the end of the war became inevitable, and as the problems that came with the end of the war became inevitable, Lincoln, and he had said there were many, many plans. He was, he was contemplating all sorts of things at once. He sent sickles to find out if, by chance, there might be a place. This, this—many Negroes exp- expressed violent opposition to it, but even some were willing. It would help the problem. He explored in a conversation. He explored the possibility of Florida, which he never thought would amount to much. Nice to speculate if they'd have bought that deal. <laughs> 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 would be the place. And the other suggestion he made, which would have solved the whole problem, he didn't know. He looked toward the great Southwest, where all the Negroes would have come, all in